Shalom, and welcome back to Scripture Central, the old Book of Mormon Central for Come Follow Me. My name is Lynn Hilton Wilson, and I am overjoyed to talk about the second half of the book of Hebrews. As I mentioned last week, this is my favorite of all the epistles, and this book is packed with imagery. We have the promise of the temple and the price of that temple. We have 45 Old Testament citations. We have so many stories from the Old Testament, and because of that, we assume that it's written by someone who really knew their scriptures. I believe it was written by Paul, not only from our historical writings and our um, stylometry, the, the evidence of, of, of computers to determine authorship, but I also believe this because of the way he writes the text. He brings in things that we've read from all of his epistles. So whether or not he wrote the final edition, I have no problem with, but it is his ideas that are begging attention by his people. These, these are written to the Jewish Christians, calling them, as well as perhaps even a missionary tract to those who are not yet Christians, calling them to come unto Christ. This is a powerful testimony of Christ. Just as a reminder, chronologically, this book fits quite early, possibly before his Roman imprisonment letters. Um, it was probably written while he was in prison in Caesarea. He's still in Israel. Remember, he was there for two years, according to the book of Acts. The Pauline epistles were placed in order by length, as we talked about earlier, but they weren't exactly sure where Hebrews should go. It was in the earliest text, but over time, people started debating. This doesn't sound like Paul. It's completely different. He doesn't start the same. He doesn't end the same. Well, it's a different audience in a different language, so you're going to hear things differently. But whoever the author is, the text is powerful. And instead of debating the authorship, let's dive into the text. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, all talk about Christ's superiority and the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood or the higher priesthood to the lower priesthood. So it goes back to Genesis chapter 14, where we talk about Melchizedek. And just as a reminder, the Joseph Smith translation adds 16 verses to Genesis 14. So if you really want a good scripture study today, in addition to reading the book of Hebrews, please go back and read the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 14. The word Melchizedek is mentioned twice in our King James of Genesis 14. It's mentioned nine times in the New Testament, all in the book of Hebrews, chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's mentioned five times in the Book of Mormon, all in Alma chapter 13. It's mentioned 19 times in the Doctrine and Covenants, sections 68 and 76 and 84 and 107 and 138. All these are on my handout. They're on my slides if you want to look at them. My slides should be attached to every video, but if you can't find my handout, I mean, just go to the Book of Mormon Central archives under Come Follow Me. Go down to the New Testament, and you should be able to get the whole corpus there. But in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 14, we find six. So this little chart just was helpful to see how and why this name was taken out, possibly, and why it was added in, and what evidence do we have that this was important? These are all very important things for someone who believes in the restoration. This becomes evidence of the restoration. It was in the Old Testament. It was in the ancient text of the Book of Mormon. And it was extremely important in the restoration. We want to know what's important? The higher priesthood. Look how often it was restored, how often it was mentioned in restoration scripture. Let's go back, though, to just talk about who Melchizedek was. At the time of Abraham, so we're talking about approximately 2000 BC, Abraham is told to leave the Ur of Chaldees and to come to the, his promised land. 
And when he gets there, it's filled with other people. But the city of Jerusalem was then called the city of Salem. Melchizedek lives there. It's the Prince of Peace. And after Melchizedek's city is translated, which we read about in the Joseph Smith translation, the Jesuite takes over this area. Jerusalem, Shalem is also Shalom for peace. But by the time of King David, a thousand BC, so just about a, a millennium after Abraham, King David is there. He conquers it and has this become his capital. Outside of the biblical text, it's also interesting to see what others write about Melchizedek. So I found him recorded in Josephus. In the Wars of the Jews, he says, Melchizedek, the righteous king, for such he really was, on which account he was and was called the city Jerusalem, which was formerly called Salem. This is really interesting because he is using what I talked about last week, Melech Zadok. He was the king. Melech means king. And just think of all the times MLK is used. I mentioned a couple of them last week, but I want you to remember in the Book of Mormon, the people that come from Jerusalem, not with Lehi, but with the little baby, King Zedekiah's little baby, that baby king, they are called the Mulekites. Take out the vowels. It's M-L-K. They're the king's people. And we refer to them later on in different ways. But this is, again, there is so much evidence of Hebraic origins in the Book of Mormon. And one of those is here with this word, mulek, melek, melek zadak. Moving on back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, and they spell it differently in Greek in the King James than we do, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. The author of Hebrews now goes back to remind you what Melchizedek did, because he's such a small little portion in Genesis, he doesn't know if everybody will remember. So he says, don't remember that Abraham Melchizedek, this is verse one and two, Abraham is returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him to whom Abraham gave a tenth of all of his tithes. So after um, Abraham and Lot came to the promised land, um, they grew and they prospered and there wasn't enough room for them. So Abraham said, Lot, you go over where you want. And Lot said, I'm going to take the best property of all. If you're giving it to me, I'm going to go down to the Dead Sea and I'm going to have this lush, beautiful, fertile soil down here. And he establishes himself and becomes very wealthy. Kings come and attack him and take him captive and all of his goods. And they head up north again. And someone escapes and tells Abraham, your nephew and his family and all of his property and his goods have all been captured by these other kings. And so Abraham and his 318 men, according to a Genesis account, chase after these kings. And I think a king is a small little village. It's more like a mayor or something. He chases them. He, he takes them all. He gets Lot back and he has all this booty and he goes down and pays his tithes on the booty to Melchizedek. But Melchizedek, this is so important. In the book of Abraham, do you remember? Abraham says, I am seeking the blessings of the father. Melchizedek is gathering a city of all the righteous ones. That is the blessings of the father. It's not the blessings of Abraham's father. His dad was wicked. It is the blessings of the patriarchs from Adam and Enoch. It is those blessings. It's the city of Enoch that was translated. People are gathering in this area of the promised land with Melchizedek as their king to become um, a city who will be accepted into the city of Enoch, a city that will be translated. And we learn all this in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 14. 
And so even though we get a little glimpse of it here in Hebrews, we don't get the whole picture unless you go back and, and read the others. The whole reason why Paul is talking about Melchizedek here is to say, even our great father, Abraham, the blue blood, Abraham, even he had to pay tithes to Melchizedek. So we know Melchizedek was important. He was greater than Abraham. I'd like to add right here the portion of Melchizedek that's added in the Book of Mormon. So let's go to Alma chapter 13, verses 17 and 18 read that Melchizedek's people were waxed strong in iniquity, but Melchizedek, having exercised mighty faith, received the office of the priesthood according to the holy order of God, that's the higher priesthood, did preach repentance unto his people. And skipping ahead a little bit into verse 18, and Melchizedek did establish peace in the land. Therefore, he was called the Prince of Peace, and he did reign under his father. All these ties, all these similarities, I hope you can tie, connect the dots to see Christ, see Melchizedek as a type of Christ. And once his city was taken up to heaven, Abraham was left on earth to carry out the seed of the righteous. Abraham is sort of like Noah in that regard, because Enoch city was left with all the righteous and there were only wicked left. Then Melchizedek city was taken with all the righteous, and now Abraham is the one who is left in the ancient world. It's interesting to look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3 in the Joseph Smith translation. I have here on my slide the handwriting of, I think this is Sidney Rigdon, who is the scribe at the time, and he adds this extra sentence or two. For this Melchizedek was ordained a priest after the order of the Son of God, which order was without father, without mother, without descent, without neither beginning of days nor end of life. And then Joseph added again through Revelation. And all those who are ordained unto this priesthood are made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continually. That is a powerful addition. So it's not that Melchizedek was without father and mother, that Melchizedek was another immaculate conception. No, no, no. It is the priesthood. Who, which is eternal. And remember that most of the time, the word priesthood means the power of God. Most of the time, it is not referring to the keys that were given only to Aaron in the ancient world, or only to the firstborn, if you're time of Adam, or only to, in our dispensation, the priesthood leaders who the prophets and apostles will pass them down to. This is a very different meaning here. And keep that broader view. It is the power of God that is endless not the man himself. And also remember to use the word Melchizedek often as a title. It is the kings of righteousness. And that's why those who enter into the covenants and live worthy of it will receive the same blessings as we learn in the oath and covenant of the priesthood are for men and women, are for all righteous children of any age um, who come unto Christ. Okay, go back to Abraham now. And in chapter seven, we learn that Melchizedek receives tithes from Abraham. And in verse six, that Melchizedek blessed Abraham with the priesthood promises, and verse 8, that his life will be blessed beyond mortality. I want to read another translation also of chapter 7, verse 7. Indisputably, the lesser priesthood is blessed by the greater. Now, the greater priesthood is the Melchizedek priesthood. This is a powerful addition. Verse 11, actually until verse 28, it's this huge chunk, 17 verses on Jesus being superior to even the king of righteousness, even Melchizedek, even the man. I'll start with verse 11 in the BSB. Now, if perfection 
could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to appear? One in the order of Melchizedek. So they have this prophecy that there is going to rise up a great priest in the order of Melchizedek in their ancient traditions that is not in our current Bibles, but they had it, and Paul is referring to it. Why would we need something higher? The Levitical priesthood does not have power to save us, is what he's trying to say here. Moving on to verse 26 and 27, I'm going to read from the JST because this is really helpful. For such an high priest became us. He's referring, of course, to our Savior, who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from the sinners, and made, here's a change, ruler over the heavens. Here's another JST change. And not as those high priests who offered sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. For he needed not to offer sacrifices for his own sins, for he knew no sins, but for the sins of the people. And this he did once. This is such helpful clarification. You know, sometimes we don't have clarifying things from the Joe Smith translation, but whenever we do, make sure you go and read them. Um, it's The scriptures are written for different generations. We are not living in that culture. We don't understand those words. They're translated. They're changed. And even modern revelation needs pondering and praying and the gift of the Spirit. All scripture study should be um, accompanied by prayer and seeking and questions until it makes sense and settles in our heart. And then, like the book of Hebrews says earlier, this becomes strong and food, meat. This is not baby's milk. He's talking about the highest ordinances of the gospel. Continuing on in chapter 8 now, we talk about the superiority of the new covenant, which is the higher law. Verse 1 says, We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And then in verse 2 and 3, it says, he's the minister of the true tabernacle. So they're clarifying Herod's temple is not the, it's just a building on earth. If you want to go back to the true tabernacle, you've got to get the one in heaven. He says in verse 3, the Lord pitched also to offer. So the Lord has it running the show on either side. The true tabernacle, whether it was Moses's or if it's the one in heaven, it's what God has prepared for us. Verse 4 in chapter 8 also has a lot of Joseph Smith translations. So let's take a look at those. They start out crossing out the words from King James and it reads, Therefore, while he was on the earth, he offered for a sacrifice his own life for the sins of the people. And now every priest under the law must needs offer gifts or sacrifices according to the law. He's saying Christ fulfilled the law. And as the priest had these responsibilities, they were just types of Christ. Verse five and six, I'd like to read in the ESV translation from still in Hebrews chapter eight. They served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it enacted on better promises. Our Savior's law is so much greater. You know, it wasn't just Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage. I see so many in our day and age selling their birthright for something as meaningless as lentil soup. And he's begging here to seek for Christ, 
to daily strengthen our testimony. You know, our prophet has told us repeatedly, if we do not learn the language of the Lord and grasp on to understanding personal revelation stronger and seeking it daily in our lives, we will fall away. You know, this need for a new covenant was not just mentioned here by Paul in Hebrews chapter 8. It comes back from Jeremiah. And he's quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the one who was prophesying in this. And do you remember where Jeremiah falls? He is the prophet in Jerusalem who is prophesying of the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Solomon's temple. And he's saying, don't go with the Egyptians. You know, you need to go where God wants you to go and you are going to be destroyed and taken to Babylon. Verse 31 of chapter 31 in Jeremiah reads, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Continuing on in verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. You know, he's talking about, you know, I tried to give them the higher law there, but they weren't ready for it. And now let's look at Hebrews chapter eight, verse eight and nine. Behold, the day cometh, saith the Lord, that when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers. You know, it's, it's very consistent. And I just wanted to point this out, even though I've only pointed out one or two of them, there are dozens of Old Testament um, references here that Paul is probably reciting. I would be very surprised. Actually, he's in Caesarea. He may have been able to, so if he's in prison in Caesarea, if this is, if our historical information is accurate, he may have had friends bringing him in scrolls from the synagogues or scrolls from a, a private collection where he was allowed to copy these things down from the book of Jeremiah. Let's move on to chapter 9 now, verse 1 through 28. The Mosaic ordinances also prefigured Christ's ministry. This is our temple text at its best. Starts out in verse 1. The first covenant, so he's referring to the Aaronic order, also had ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. So he's talking about Moses' tabernacle or Solomon's temple. There was a tabernacle made, a candlestick. He goes on to verse three, a table, the shoe bread, the second veil, and there are these different doorways um, between the holy place and the holy of holies. He goes through these things and now he is saying they are all types of Christ. Every one of them, the veil, the shoe bread, the incense altar, the menorah, the branched candlesticks, they all represent different aspects of our Savior. I made a chart here with all the books in the Old Testament, how they line up with the books in Hebrew. When we talk about the holy place, and on my chart, I also have a little map of the temple, a floor plan of the temple. And you can see how the lamp or the menorah is discussed in Exodus chapter 26 and Leviticus chapter 10. But here it is in Hebrews chapter 9, and then the table of incense is repeated in Psalms. Then the shoe bread is repeated in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Then I have the holy place. That was the holy of holies. Now, the time when Paul is writing, it was empty. But remember, in Moses' tabernacle, he was told to put the Ark of the Covenant there. And so we have some beautiful descriptions of what it should have been in the Old Testament the Ark of the Covenant is described in Exodus 26 and 30 and 40. And on my chart, I have, you know, a dozen verses where this all fits in to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. But it's also discussed many times in the New Testament outside of the Pauline corpus. We get it in the Gospel of John as well. And I feel that it types and shadows, it prefigures the holiest place. 
Do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was told to be placed in the Holy of Holies? They put a name on the, the lid. So inside the Ark of the Covenant, we've got three things. We've got Aaron's rod for authority. We've got the bowl of manna that God, your God is going to nourish you and feed you if you would but honor and obey him. And then we have the tablets, the stone tablets um, representing the law of God, that we are going to be governed by law and that we need to obey God's commandments. That's the covenant. And then the lid on top of the covenant, they have two angels on either side. That lid is called the mercy seat. And they believe that was the throne of God and that the high priest would come and talk to God on his throne. And it was just a type from the throne they saw in heaven, this golden um, place that it's founded on all these principles. Well, that mercy seat and what Paul is trying to describe here, and I think is a prefiguring of the empty tomb that John carefully describes as a slab with an angel on either end. And it is the most merciful place in all of Christianity. It is the place where Christ ascended. It is the resurrection. The empty tomb, the place where the body was, is a, um, had been foreshadowed by the mercy seat. And now we see the two as a type and shadow. But let's move on now to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ, remember Christ is the anointed one, or the word Mashiach, Messiah, would have been written in there in Hebrew being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. He is not a tabernacle that Moses created with a badger skin and everything else. He is not a tabernacle that was made with stone by Solomon or, or Zerubbabel or Herod. He, his tabernacle, he is the body of Christ. It is his body. He is our temple. We have to go through him. We can also read about this in Alma chapter 25 and Mosiah 13 and 2 Nephi 25. There's a whole slew of them in my handout. I love these next few verses, chapter 19, verses 12 to 14. I'd like to read them from the DRB translation. This is a very old translation. Neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who by the Holy Ghost offered himself unspotted unto God, cleansed by our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We can all be cleansed. Our consciences can be cleansed. We can have the guilt removed. We can have the sorrow, the sadness. Um, and sometimes the pain and suffering is the best thing to take us there. But that too, at some time in God's great plan, will also be removed. The blessings of repentance are my favorite blessings that we can receive here on earth and in heaven. Chapter 9, verse 15 reads in the NIV, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Then continuing on to verse 16, he says, Or where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. Now, there is a great change on that as we read other translations and in the Joe Smith translation. So I'd encourage you to go to them. He's saying we need to have a covenant. Remember, testator is covenant. We need to have a covenant. And the covenant is going to be intact when we repent of our sins and come to he who is our testator. It's a beautiful different translation. Continuing on to verse 22, without the shedding of blood is no remission. And that goes back to the Mosaic law. It goes back to Adam when he was told by the angel, why am I having to sacrifice animals? Well, it's all to be a type of the son of God, who will be the lamb of God, who will be 
represented by these holy lambs who are perfect without splot, without blemish, and without broken bones, they will typify the Lamb of God who will come to the earth and suffer for the sins of the world. The plan is so beautiful. The tapestry is so complete. God has tied all these together. Verse 28 of chapter 9 reads that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And then it continues on in verse 28. And unto them that looked for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So Christ appeared the second time to Mary of Magdala, the other women. That's in Matthew's account. All the women saw him. And then we hear in Mark's account, he also appeared to Peter alone. We hear in John's account, he appeared to the 10 um, apostles together. You know, he, he appeared, according to um, Acts, to, um, you know, f- over 500 people at once during his 40-day ministry. But we're talking about another time. This is Paul. He's writing later. He's writing probably about 60 AD. Christ is going to come again a second time without sin unto salvation. I believe that's referring to the second coming. Now we move on to chapter 10. Verses 1 to 18 all talks about Christ's sacrifice. And he's sort of summarizing the last three chapters. He says in verse 1 and 2 in the BSB translation, the law is only a shadow of good things to come, not the reality themselves. If it could, would not the offering have ceased? You know, why do we have to do it repeated? You know, I just had an interesting conversation with an Orthodox rabbi a couple of days ago. And he said, we have to have repeated sacrifice. It is not just one sacrifice for all. And I said, that's because the sacrifice is not perfect. He said, no, that's because God commanded it to be repeated. So without accepting Jesus as the great and last sacrifice, without having the Book of Mormon that is written before Christ came to other children of Israel, without that information, they have missed the way that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the prophecies of the promised Messiah. They miss this. This is so dear. And I can't wait till every knee will bow and they too will be able to receive. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Chapter 10, verse 5 to 7 in the NIV reads, When Christ came into the world, he said, I have come to do your will, my God. And that, of course, becomes all of our pattern. Not just on the Sabbath day, not just when we're on our knees, but every day, every hour, we are here to do the will of the Lord. Verse 10 said, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Remember the word sanctification, sanctus, sanctified, comes from the root for holiness. We are made holy through Christ. This is one reason why our prophet has asked us to go to the temple more often Because there we can be made holy. The more we are around holy things, we become more holy, especially with a broken heart and a contrite spirit receiving our Savior. Verse 16 to 17 also talks about Christ. In the NIV, it reads, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them in their minds. Their sins and their lawless acts, I will remember no more. It is Christ's law that we want in our hearts. We want to divorce ourselves from our own passions and appetites and all the things that we do that are self-centered. And we want to ask Christ to put his law in our heart, to write it in our minds. Verse 19 to 31 now in chapter 10 have this whole theme about a call to come. 
It's an appeal to hold firm, to climb the mountain. Remember, he's, he's talking about the children of Israel down at the foothills of Sinai. He's saying, please come climb the mountain, enter into the presence of the Lord. He says in verse 19, having therefore brethren, and remember that means brethren and sisters in the NIV and, and in Greek, with boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. So this new covenant allows us to all become high priests, to all, not just on the day of atonement, not just one day a year, but to enter through the veil. And it's an interesting thing to think about Christ as the veil. If Christ is our mediator, if he is our advocate with the Father, we have to pass through him to enter into the presence of the Father. And so Christ becomes the veil. It's beautiful imagery. I want to also translate this in the Aramaic Bible. So it says, by the way of the life who made us new is now within the veil of his flesh. Now, do you remember back in Genesis um, when Adam and Eve partake of the tree and they have to leave paradise and go into the world? Um, It says that God is going to put angels or cherubim to guard the way of the tree of life. So this Aramaic Bible says, the way of the tree of life. That's the whole idea of the way of the priest, to get the priesthood. You're, you offer your sacrifice, you repent, you're washed, you're anointed, you're clothed. You, you know, this is what he's talking about. And we have to accept Christ. It is now within the veil, which is his flesh. Continuing on in verse 22 of chapter 10, let us approach the veil, he's talking about the veil, with a true heart and the confidence of faith having bathed our bodies in pure water. Remember, that's the priest's role to have that washing. And let us grasp firmly, skipping down a little bit, for he who has promised us is faithful. If we hold on to his word, if we hold on to that iron rod, we will be led to the tree of life, which is the figurative menorah, and into the presence of God. You know, everything is tied together. All these visions of God, and whether we're looking at the throne of God there, or Paul's here, or in... um, in the book of Revelation or the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, all these visions of God tie together with this same message. Chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, reading the BSB, spur one another onto love and good deeds and let us not neglect meeting together and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, capital D is referring to the second coming. The early Christians thought this was coming immediately. Um, Little did they know there had to be two millennium and a lot more than just a short apostasy before the truth was restored and before the church was ready. And we are still preparing. But we were told years ago that we had to take the Book of Mormon more seriously. We had to take the covenants more seriously. And now our prophet has said we have to take the temple more seriously, the gift of the Holy Ghost more seriously, the sacrament more seriously, our Sabbath more seriously. We have got to become pure and holy in order for Christ to come again. But we are promised that the days will be cut short if the church will live their ordinances, live their covenants, live their promises, then Christ will come again. Verse 26 in the BSB reads, if we deliberately go on sinning after we have received a knowledge of the truth, and then skipping down to verse 29, one deserves to be punished who has trampled on the Son of God. So as Latter-day Saints, we call 
Paul calls on us, uh, as well as the early saints, to stop any form of hatred or animosity or contention. Stop your interest in breaking the law of chastity and pornography or any other form that breaks the law of chastity. Stop your greediness, your self-centeredness. You know, put these things away. He says, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's verse 31. You have got to repent. You have no idea how hard it is going to be. And jo- Joseph was taught the same thing in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Remember, uh, all um, Martin Harris has just lost 116 pages. Do you remember this part? And the Lord writes in this spanking letter. He scolds him and he says, repent, repent, repent. I think it's written 19 times in these two um, uh, letters and um, or these, these two revelations. And he says, if you don't repent, you will have to suffer even as I, which caused I, the greatest of all, to bleed from every pore and suffer. Um, I'm just paraphrasing it, but this is what Hebrews 10 verse 31 is talking about. Verse 35 continues on in the BSB. Do not throw away your confidence. Now, I like to read that. Do not throw away your faith. Do not throw away your traditions. Do not throw away your hope. Do not throw away your testimony. It holds a greater reward. You know, don't listen to the adversary. We have this darker side. We have the natural man and we have constant temptation. Don't listen to it. You're throwing away something that is so much greater. You're throwing away a pearl of great price. Verse 37 reads in the NIV of chapter 10, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And then he continues to encourage them in verse 39. I'll read again from the NIV. But we do not belong to those who shrink back, but to those who have faith and are saved. He says, there will be some who shrink back. There are some who can't handle the pressure of the, of the persecution by those around them. And theirs is physical and ours is more emotional and scholastic and educational, academic, whatever it is. But he's saying, hold on. You just worry about yourself. You hold on. And then we come to this fabulous chapter 11 on faith. Faith is defined as action. And this is one of the best chapters in all scripture on faith. You know, there's Hebrews 11, Alma 32, Moroni 7, really teach us all about what faith can do. This is a place to go if you want to increase your faith. So he starts out in verse one with a few Joseph Smith translation changes. Actually, just one. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. You know, if we are walking by faith, we are not the blind leading the blind. We do not have faith in outcomes. If I would believe in God, if he would just give me what I want, I would believe in God, if he would just heal me, I would believe in God, if he'd just fix my marriage or fix my relationships or give me a marriage or give me a kid. That's not what we believe in. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen when we are following Christ. When we are following that great high priest, this great star, Joseph Smith taught on this also in that same talk known as the King Follett's Discourse at the General Conference, April 7th, 1844. The simple and first principles of the gospel is to know for a certainty and the character of God, that we may converse with him as one man with another, and that God himself, the father of us all, dwell on the earth. This is powerful. The first principle of the gospel is to understand who God is. Now, you may think, oh, we all know who God is. That is not right. I told you I just had this conversation with this wonderful Jewish rabbi that I really honor and admire. But when someone asks him, 
you know, we repent to receive forgiveness. We come unto Christ to receive forgiveness. Do you believe? What is your idea of the nature of God? He said, we don't understand who God is. God is unknowable. God is spirit. God is unfathomable. We have no idea who God is. No, we don't come unto God in that way like you guys do. Um, and Joseph is saying, this is the first principle. Let us understand who God is. So one of the first things published in our first editions of the Doctrine and Covenants was these lectures on faith. They weren't written by Joseph, but he had read them and approved them. And in the third lecture on faith, it reads, the character of God is necessary in order to exercise faith in him unto life and salvation. And that without correct ideas of his character, men could not have the power to exercise faith in him unto life and salvation. But that correct idea of his character, as far as his character was concerned, in the exercising of faith in him, lay a sure foundation. If we understand that God loves us, if we understand that our trials are because he loves us, if we understand that tailor-made trials and normal earth-life trials, if we understand that he knows more than we do, we can trust him. If we trust God calls a prophet on earth, if we trust that the nature of God is such that he will speak to us through living prophets, we can trust our prophets. But it all goes back to understanding God. And if we can trust our prophets, then we will not trust Google or our, our cultural, whatever the crazy things about our society is that says, no, this is right. This is right. If the prophet differs from culture, let's follow the prophet. Let's follow God. This is a powerful statement. So as we look in Hebrews chapter 11, let's look for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not faith in outcomes, not faith in our desires, not faith in wishful thinking, but faith in Christ. He starts out saying, I want you to have faith like the prophets have faith. He says, a faith like Abel when he offered before God. This tells us something. In the Old Testament, we don't know that Abel has greater faith than Cain. One's offering a lamb, one's offering um, the fruits of their garden. Both are going to be needed later on when they start offering them in the temple. We have the first fruits as well as lambs, but it's not following what Adam was taught. And so verse four ends up by saying it was that through this faith that he was commended for his righteousness. And then we go to the prophet Enoch and talk about his faith in verse five and six, the faith of Enoch, that he was translated, you know, to going up to heaven and skipping down to verse six. It's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And he goes on to Noah. You know, it's just like the primary song, follow the prophet. In verse seven, this is the BSB translation. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not seen, he became the heir of their righteousness that comes by faith. And he goes on about the faith of Abraham and Sariah in verses eight. It is by faith that Abraham, when he was called, went out not knowing whether to go. And then if you skip down to verse 11, he talks about Sarah. He says, it's by faith that Sarah herself received strength to bear this child, the promise of these decades of promise as she was 90 years old. He talks about more prophets in verses 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises because Christ has not died yet. You know, Christ has not been resurrected. These prophets are before that. So they haven't received that promise. But having seen them afar off, they believed that their savior could do it. They believed that Christ would fulfill that promise and he embraced them and he confessed that they were all strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We are pilgrims on the earth. We are strangers. We have got to have faith that Christ is running the show. He continues on in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob 
and Esau according to the things to come. This is a very different story than we get in the Bible that says, oh, Jacob was confused. He didn't know who he's blessing. No, by faith, he's doing it right. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed both of those as the sons of Joseph then worshiped. It's by faith that Joseph, when he died, this is now down to verse 22, he made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. You know, he's saying all these prophecies are given because of inspiration through faith. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, he can lead us along his path back to him. Verse 23, I want to read from the BSB translation. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months. And skipping down. And when he was grown, he chose to suffer oppression with the God's people. By faith, he kept the Passover and passed through the Red Sea on dry land. You know, all of these have parallels to our Savior. Moses was a type of Christ. They're all parallel. All the prophets' lives, we're told in the book of Hoshea, have a pattern to look at our Savior. Christ was also an unusual birth. He was also taken down to Egypt and brought back. He was also, you know, da-da-da-da-da. You see parallels through. Then he talks about from verses 30 to 35, the faith of Joshua and many other Israelites, even does people like Rahab and some of them that we don't think are great examples, like, like Samson. Hebrews 11, verse 39, all these prophets, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They believed, but God had not yet fulfilled that. But verse 40, he talks about the faith of those who are faithful. And the JST adds a very significant addition. Starts out with King James, God having provided some better things. And then Joseph Smith adds, for them through their sufferings, for without sufferings, they could not be made perfect. So let's remember to get on our knees when hard times come, fall before the Savior, submit our will to his and plead for his help to learn what we need to learn in order to become closer to him, in order to become more like him, You know, I just prayed every day on chemo that the Lord would remove the cancers from my soul. I am so grateful I had to go through that trial in order to know my God better. Now we enter into chapter 12. I'd like to start reading in the NIV. We are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and let us run with perseverance. Now that's translated um, patience. Let us run with patience in the KJV. But in the BSB, let us run with endurance, or in the JB, steadily. And I love the NEB, let us run with resolutions, the race marked out for us. As we go through life, let us be resolute, let us endure, let us strengthen, stay on your knees every morning until you feel God's love, until you feel his confidence, and your heart is filled with faith. Pray for faith that you will have the strength to carry on each day. Verse 3 says in the BSB, Consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, just rely on your Savior. Call on God. He has suffered these things. You can, you can walk beside him. You can share your yoke, your burdens with him. As he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Moving on to chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, this whole two verses is is very similar to Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 11, as well as Dr. Kevin in section 122, you'll see here. But in the BSB, it reads, My son, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. You know, let's not be proudful. Let's not be defensive. 
But let's remember the counsel that the Lord told Joseph in Liberty Jail. All these things will give thee experience and be for thy good if you use them to draw closer to Christ rather than away. You know, we've got to come unto Christ in all things. Moving on to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 in the BSB reads, For the Lord disciplines one he loves. This is a very well-known scripture from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. It's using more of the language of the Septuagint, the Greek translation. If you are feeling chastened, rejoice. The Lord loves you. He knows your name and he's trying to help you. He's refining you. If you're feeling like you've been cracked and broken like a shard piece of glass, just realize the Lord wants to refine every one of those edges. He wants to make you like sea glass or like a polished stone so that you can become pure again. Verse 10 says in the BSB, God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. If you're feeling disciplined, use this as an opportunity to go to the house of the Lord and plead for um, his holiness to come into you, that we can have his heart, that our old desires can be changed and that we can now, like the high priest, wear holiness to the Lord on our forehead, just as it is on each door in the temple. Chapter 11 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. This is the NIV translation, but painful. Now, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You remember uh, years and years ago, General Authority, uh, President Packer's talk on the, the pruning, uh, using this idea of God shaping us and pruning us like a tree. And when he clips here and cuts there, it's all to produce more fruit. It's all for our good. So if we have to give away something in our character and our nature that is unholy, allow the Lord to prune it so that we can become better fruit bearers for him. Continuing on now in verse 14, he gives this appeal to holiness. In fact, for 15 verses now, he talks, he's all back in the temple. He's calling us to enter through the veil into his presence. This is the NIV in verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will be able to see God. So for these 15 verses, he's saying, become peacemakers, which is exactly what our prophet is asking. The book of Hebrews fits into President Nelson's conference who talks over the last five years. Verse 16 says, see that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. That's the NIV. Esau had good things about him. But remember, this is Paul writing from his perspective, and he's talking about the time when he sold the birthright. You know, Esau repents and, and, and it has a great nation out of him. Chapter 12, verse 18 in the NIV reads, you have not come to a mountain. So he's talking about the temple again, going back into the presence of God. Remember back in earlier in last week in Hebrews, he, he said, I, I, I want you early Christian saints to be just like the children of Israel who are going now back into the Mount Sinai. And God is calling you up his mountain to enter into his presence. I don't want you to be like the children of Israel in the, where they provoked God. So he's going back to that conversation there in verse 18. And then skipping up to verse 22, he reads, but have you come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem? You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have the opportunity to come back and enter into God's presence. Can you please climb the mountain? And I believe what he's talking about is making the higher ordinances, the sacred covenants that we refer to in the temple. 
Continuing on in verse 23 of chapter 12, it reads, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Okay, we understand who God is. We know who the judge of all is. We know who the church of the firstborn are. But who are the just men made perfect? Remember the word perfect is often whole or complete. They're finished. Who are these just men made finished? We're so blessed to have Joseph Smith restore so many of these interesting phrases. Last week, we talked about the rest of the Lord meant entering into his presence. So this week, Paul uses a phrase that most other Christians define. Well, no other Christians define it like we do. Who are just men made perfect? So I looked again at Joseph Smith's sermons and found a parallel here. It says, the Hebrew church came into the spirit of just men made perfect to angels and to God and to Jesus Christ. And what did they learn by coming into the spirits of just men made perfect? Is it written? No, the spirits of just men are the ministering servants of those who are sealed up unto eternal life. And it is through them that the sealing power comes down. When we can read about the Kirtland Temple, when Elijah brings the sealing power in section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants, a week after the first dedication on Easter Sunday, this is talking about those people who have had their calling and election made sure will receive these gifts and keys to be sealed. That's who just men made perfect are. This is a really significant um, instruction from the Lord. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, we have a very long chapter on all the obligations of Christians. And usually now in our church, we don't like to make lists of what you should do on the Sabbath and what you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. But Paul is still a list maker. And here it goes. Serve God by loving and show kindness to others. Verse four, live the law of chastity. Verse five and six, be financially responsible, especially with your tithes and offerings, I'd like to add there. In verse seven and eight, please sustain your leaders. And then in verse nine to 12, avoid apostate teachings. And that saturates the last few letters of Paul's writings. Verse 15 to 16, he says, live the new law of sacrifice. And do you remember that's the broken heart and contrite spirit? It's, it's not an animal sacrifice. And then he concludes verse 17 to 19 with asking them to obey and to support and pray for their leaders. And he's saying this so humbly because remember, he's in prison at this time. We think he's in prison in Caesarea during that, that time he's asking for their help. And so we conclude with a beautiful passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22 and 23. Brothers and sisters, I urge you that you bear with my word of exhortation. As Timothy has been released, and if he arrives soon, I will come with him and see you. And then he sends greetings and finishes up. But Paul hopes to visit the Hebrew saints again. He hopes to go back to Jerusalem. And whether he's in Caesarea or whether he's in Rome, he is so optimistic that he will be able to visit these saints again. I pray that this book of Hebrews will lead us closer to Christ, that it will lead us closer to the temple that it will lead us to our knees, that we, it will lead us to become more holy as our Savior is. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.